to episode 23 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. My guest on the show today is Anne Wood. Anne is an artist and maker, perhaps best known for her sculptural birds, boats, spiders, rats, and mushrooms. Anne works with found and salvaged materials, many of them vintage or antique garments. She's interested in transformation, turning cardboard boxes from the fancy grocery store on her block into turreted castles and ruined old petticoats and gowns into seas for paper mache boats. She loves to give the most common materials and tired, dispirited, faded things new importance and meaning. Throughout her life, Anne's been infatuated with smallness, intricacies, miniaturization, collections, repetition, lost or abandoned things discovered and rescued, the idea of haunted and enchanted places, and the setting of a tiny stage. Anne lives in Brooklyn. Anne Wood, welcome. Hi, Abby. Hi, it's so great to talk to you. I've been an admirer of your work for many years since I began sewing in three dimensions myself, and it's just so wonderful to be able to have you on the show. I'm so happy to be here, and it's it's we are we are from the olden times, I know, right? We're blogging like way back when. When did you first start blogging? I I think shortly after you. Um, I think officially in 2006. I and I thought about it. For a couple years before I started, I started to see. I didn't really know what a blog was, but I started to see them around, and I was fascinated by, by the idea. And I was also looking for sort of a career change and um, looking to do more personal work. And I sort of started to gravitate to that as a maybe way to get myself to do that sort of thing. But it took me about two years from the time I started thinking about it till I jumped in. And that, yeah, I guess that was 2006. Wow. Yeah. So we do go way back (laughs) as I think I might've found you pretty soon after that. So that's so exciting to finally actually have a real conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to hear a little bit about your background. Did you grow up in New York city and what do you like about living there? Um, that's an interesting, I, I did not grow up in New York city. I sort of grew up in the opposite of New York city. I grew up in Massachusetts in a really tiny town, um, Cherry Valley, and my family still lives thereabouts. Um, super rural and very, uh, you know, quiet and slow. And I had a super rich childhood, a super creative childhood. And um, it's funny, I was thinking lately that the things that I was doing when I was about 11 are pretty much exactly what I do now. I mean, almost without any difference. Um, yeah, I, I, the, it's so much of the same stuff. I even still, I still sew with some of the same fabric, the same bags of scraps that I've had since I was a kid. That's just wonderful. And I, I can totally relate with that idea. I actually do still sew with um, some thread that I got as a gift when I was 11. So. Yeah. <laughs> and a been a sewing kit. And, um, and it's how great is it to be able to have a career doing the things that you did when you were a child? It's, it's amazing. And it's kind of strange. And even, oh, lately I came across, um, oh, wait, backtracking what I like about living in New York. I don't know. I could sort of live anywhere. I, th- I think lately that maybe it's time for me not to live in New York anymore because I'm so um, not location it doesn't matter where I am. 
I could live somewhere far less noisy and expensive. But um, I guess I love my apartment. I love my neighborhood. I love the park. All my friends are here. So I guess that's what keeps me here. Um, but what I wanted to say was uh, lately I came across something. I came across the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater when I was a child. And it was interesting to me how informative it was to, to what I do now. Um, it was a big deal for my mother to take us anywhere. And when I was really small and my sister was even smaller, she, um, you know, she didn't drive at all. So there were buses to get to the closest city. And we saw this film that I've never been able to forget images from, but I couldn't remember the name of it or anything specific. And I sort of searched around. I could never find, and I, and I never hoped to find what it was because it was so pre-internet, but it was fascinating. And I, the images occurred to me regularly. And then a few weeks ago, I came across a clip of it on YouTube. And what it was, was the Royal Ballet made a film of the tales of Beatrix Potter. And it turns out you can buy it on Amazon. And you should so get it. If you haven't already seen it, you can also see clips of it on YouTube. Um, I think you can see it almost in its entirety on YouTube. Um, but I think, but for that film, I would do different work. And if you see it or see images from it, I posted some about about some images from it on my blog. You will understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, I watched some of the clips that you linked to, and I can definitely see that same, I don't know, it's like a mood or something. Yes, yes, it's very much, I mean, besides the, you know, the am, animals and outfits and um, the, the, the mood of it is, yes, very much um, a huge, huge, I so see the, the, the relationship between the mood of the things that I make now. Yeah, totally. So did you study art in school? A little bit. Um, I, you know, I went to art school right after high school, but I didn't stay very long. Um, I think I did a couple semesters and then I went back sporadically, um, and, you know, studied some printmaking and metalsmithing and things like that. Okay. And then, um, you said that you were interested in a career change around the time when you started the blog in 2006. So what were you doing prior to then? Yeah. Well, it wasn't even so much, I guess, career changes in the right word. I was, I was freelancing. I had always freelanced. Um, and I w was making things for, uh, lots of TV commercials, um, sometimes things for films. Um, I was doing, uh, decorating for commercial buildings. Sometimes I was painting murals. You know, I, I did a lot of fun stuff and I got to be really expressive in it, which was, was lucky. Um, but it involved a whole lot of travel. I was probably away six months out of every year. And also, you know, I was, I was, uh, turning 41, which 40 didn't feel like anything to me. When I turned 41, I, I freaked out and I thought, I always thought that I would do more personal work, more self-directed, self-driven work. Um, and while I was really enjoying the creative stuff I was doing, I really was doing very little to no personal work. And that's really what I wanted to make myself do. Um, and that's how I started, you know, my solution to that was I gave myself my 100-horse project. So yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that because that, to me, was the first thing I remember about you. Mm -hmm. So you made a hundred cardboard horses. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It was it was kind of my way to begin. You, you know, the the possibilities for what I could make seemed just paralyzing. So I thought I would give myself something small, something manageable, and if I, I felt like if I assigned a shape to it, that would be one thing out of the way. 
in terms of starting. Like I knew every day it was going to be a horse. It was going to be one of these three shapes and I was going to, you know, somehow be expressive on this horse. And I gave myself weekends off because I was still working full time at other things. The blog part was, well, if I just make these and nobody knows about it, you know, there was a lack of accountability. I was afraid I would flake. So I thought maybe this is my moment to, to find out what a blog might be like and I can commit to posting these and see what happens. Yeah. That's the greatest thing about a blog is that yeah. sense of accountability. Even if you only have one reader, there's someone out there looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, initially it was my, my sister. It was just my sister was looking and that was it. But she would know if I didn't make a horse. And, you know, I, I had officially started the blog, I think, six months before I figured out the horse thing. I put up one post. I'd made a little doll and a paper mache bed. And I put up the post and I didn't tell anybody about it. And there it sat. And I, I just, I, I was paralyzed after that. I couldn't think of, you know, what I could possibly post. So the, the horses solved that problem too. Like, oh, I don't have to think of it. I'm just going to put up another horse. And I, I also liked the idea of, you know, at the end that there would be a collection. There would something that might work in, in volume, that something that might, you know, become a different thing as a group, which it did. It became a stampede. Right. Absolutely. They were very dramatic, all hanging on the wall together. Because each one is how big? Maybe like, I'm thinking like a foot and change? No, they're, they're very small. They're oh, about- really? Yeah, they're about six inches. See, I d- totally didn't realize that. Wow. Okay, so they're small. They're, yeah, but together small. they make a, a more dramatic. Right, a, a, a you know a stampede of a length that I couldn't even really quite fit in my apartment. I ended up putting it on the floor, and then you know they they led me to all sorts of other things. As I was making the horses, I, all sorts of other ideas started to solidify. Um, things that had been rolling around in my head, you know, since I was a child, like, I think the, the next thing that I made was a paper mache boat, which I had been trying to figure out, you know, for years and years and years, but the, the discipline of the horses sort of made me more able to carve out time to spend on my own ideas. And when you were working in the freelance jobs prior to this, you were doing some three-dimensional work. Uh, actually, well. mostly. I was okay. doing mostly three-dimensional work. Um, I, you know, I, I painted a lot and I drew a lot. I illustrated a cookbook, which you probably don't know, uh, technical illustrations. A lot of the three-dimensional stuff that I made were, you know, I made uh, giant Martian heads for Snickers that got crushed in the subway. The subway doors, that was the commercial. So I made a bunch. They all got crushed. I made um, showgirl fur hats for an E-Trade commercial. I made a um, garden gnome for Toyota. I mean, really fun stuff. Yeah. Gosh, that's so interesting. Wow. I'm going to have to hunt around and find some of these things because <laughs> I'm intrigued like, to see. digital age. So, I mean, the, I have some photos that are photos, you uh-huh. know. Yeah. Stuff. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, because I really only know you as sort of cardboard horses of beyond. Um, so, so when you meet new people, how do you explain what you do now? Oh, very often, very poorly. You know, uh, it's, I've gotten better at it, but I, you know, I've never really come up with a perfect answer for that. And I think it's partly just because of me being the way I am. And also partly because it's a little hard to put in a nutshell. And so I guess, you know, I have a sort of stock answer where I say I make artwork and I sell it. And if they're interested beyond that, they can ask a question. And I also consider, you know, how the question was asked 
or, you know, if I have some intuitive feeling about what kind of answer the person is looking for, like a while ago, I, an acquaintance of an acquaintance said, um, so I hear you work at one of those work from home schemes. And, you know, my response to that is yes. <laughs> you know, as a matter of fact, that is correct. <laughs> it is a total work from home scheme. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you only knew. <laughs> um, so you work in a variety of materials, um, which I referred to earlier. You use a lot of antique garments and yes. you also use crepe paper. You were working recently on some flamingos, um, paper mache with the boats that we just talked about. And you're also now working on some cake toppers. They're a kind of a new cake topper with a, a mix of different materials. So what are you looking for in a particular material? Uh, part of it is curiosity. I come across something like crepe paper and I look at it and think, wow, what, what would happen if I did this to that? What would happen, you know, if I, I dip that and dye or what if I got that all wet and scrunched, you know, things like that. Just curious, like what, what are the possibilities of this? Um, low barrier to, to entry is, uh, is frequently a factor for me. Like I like things that are easy to get. I like things that aren't expensive. Um, I like things that don't feel intimidating to start with. Um, I like things that I can have big failures with. I like to be able to experiment and not feel bad about having ruined something. Because I have, on the way to anything I like, you know, there's there are a lot of duds. I make a lot of duds, um, and I do so willingly. But I like to not feel bad about having wrecked a precious material. Mm-hmm. And I love... I have that same sort of idea of like sort of thriftiness and sort of taking something that other people literally step on or walk right past or just sort of pop in the junk mail like every day and, um, and showing them that if you take that and you look at it in a new way and you cut it apart and put it back together again, you can make something that's, you know, really valuable and beautiful and something people would really pay for. Yes. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a part of creative process too, to, to, you know, to always be looking at things and wondering what their possibilities are. You know, what if I turn that upside down? What if what's inside there? What if I all, you know, those things like, um, even things like type in the newspaper when I make my ships, you know, I love the sort of happenstance of how the type turns up or playing with, you know, the different scales of type and let, let them be words sometimes, or sometimes they become abstract patterns as they layer and they're not words anymore, but there's a, a shift in scale. Yeah, that's so great. It's, that's, it's really fascinating. I, it just reminds me, I made a bird once. Um, I cut all the tags out of all my clothes Oh, and wow. then I sewed them all together and made this piece of fabric, and then I cut it up and made a bird out of it. Um, it was really, I don't know, it was an interesting experiment. That's, that's really interesting. You know, there's a, um, I'm going to look this up for you later. There's a, a woman who did a giant installation of clothing tags. Wow. She got people to send them from all over the world. I think she might have made a quilt. I mean, but she had thousands and thousands. I'll see if I can find it. Yeah, it was totally. I'd love to see that. Um, because I think it really is sort of in a similar vein to what we were talking about, about sort of the things that you literally don't ever even see. It's like fabric that's around you that you don't right. notice. Mm-hmm. Mm, I love that. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about your design process. Like how, how does this all come about when you're working on like a new bird, for example? Well, it's different for 
different kinds of work. Um, and I sort of, I guess I divide things into two kinds of processes, processes, processes. Um, you know, there's designing a, a sewing project or, a, an, or, or um, and then there's also a creative process. There, and so I guess I have those separated in my mind. Um, let's, for example, designing a bird. I'm actually right now I'm redesigning my songbird because oh, this is such a lesson. All my other patterns I backed up onto my computer. Um, this one I didn't, and it was a tricky pattern, and I lost it. Oh. I, I can't find it, and it's oh, it's so frustrating. I think I have some some memory of it that'll make making the next one easier. But my goodness, I hate do overs. I you know I've gotten better designing soft sculpture, sewing sort of things. Um, in the beginning, you know, just endless awkward drafts, you know, and slight revisions, slight revisions, take it apart, revise again, take it apart, revise again, record the good stuff. Um, I, you know, can put something together with fewer drafts now. I think when I, I designed a lamb pattern for Fortuny a while ago, and instead of 40 drafts, you know, I think I got there in five. Yeah, it's amazing how um, the sort of accumulation of experience of prototyping, it yeah. does help. And yet there are times when it's still surprising how hard it is, um, it, it, especially hard. if it's something completely new. Like if you were to yes. make a frog, right? It would be right. really new. Um, yes. And also I am, and this is partly what inspired me to start to sell patterns. I've been paying attention to like the parts of my day that I'm happiest in or the parts of the day where I'm not obsessively running to check my email or Facebook or, you know, I'm lost in something. And what I'm usually lost in is designing something new. Um, and there are a million things I want to design. And I don't even, I don't think frustration even registers with me when I'm on like a, the millionth draft or something, I just enjoy the process so much and I want to do more of that. And so that's, that's sort of the solution for me as well. Then, you know, publish those patterns. Yeah. Let's talk about the patterns. You're getting ready to release your first patterns and, and maybe kits too. What was the impetus for sort of beginning to do this? So you wanted more time designing and less time making finished products. Is that right? Yeah. But I, I, you know, I still want to make finished products. Um, serious production is is tough, and I've been doing it for a really long time, um, and my arms are tired. Like literally, I am. You know, it's getting harder. Um, I want to keep doing some of that, but I, I, you know, I, I think that it's also it's also just time for me to start publishing the patterns. You know, I started to think about this. The, when I taught at Squam for the first time in 2012, um, two years ago. And I, I feel like ideas have an incubation period for me, but, you know, new ideas for, of like two years. Or maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's just procrastination in a fancy costume. But um, that's when I first started thinking about it. It was my first teaching experience. Um, I went in not having any idea what to expect or, you know, how I would be in that role. And I loved it. Um, and I was amazed by what people made. I was amazed by other people's imagination and interpretations. Um, and, I, you know, Squam is the most fun place in the world, and I had a great time anyways. But the teaching experience left me feeling like I want to do more of this, and it made me feel like sharing patterns is not the scariest thing in the world. 
That's what I, I wanted to ask about the fear there. Was there fear or is there still fear about giving it away? You know, like your, for example, your, your little bird, I don't know if you refer to it as like a lark. It's like the little bird on the wire legs with the little beak, the little sort of glittery beak, you know, the yeah. main bird that you always make. I think that, them as odd little birds. Okay. So that's when people see them, I think now at least people really immediately are like, oh, that bird's by Ann Wood. You know, that that's, it's a very signature piece and um you've i don't know how many you've made but it must be it's frightening thousands and thousands okay so frightening so so does it feel scary to then say here are the instructions yes it does yeah there's definitely been a lot of anxiety about it just partly because i my identity is so wrapped up in what i make and those little birds you know, became such sort of little ambassadors for me. Um, and they also, in terms of supporting myself from doing this, they, you know, they really launched it. Um, and I have made so many and they sort of have come along with me. Um, and you know, it's not, they've already been imitated because that's, you know, that's just part of, of what happens. You know, if, if something can be reverse engineered, it will be, but the idea of sort of like sitting down, writing a pattern and putting it out there, I don't know, it did make me anxious. Um, and I think that prevented me for a while from doing it. But ultimately, I became more excited about the idea. And that sort of outweighed the anxiety. Um, I started to get excited about, you know, lots of little birds in the world, you know, people um, making their birds and maybe photographing them, you know, the birds that I make have had a lot of adventures, they've been to camp, they've put on plays, they've done all sorts of things. Um, and I wonder like what other people might do with that. And I think it could be really fun to see. So anyways, um, I, I, that's the first pattern I'm going to release. I actually, uh, started to put the finishing touches on the PDF last night and it's just about ready to go. I can't wait to, to get one. I'm totally buying one as soon as they're ready. And I'm a, I'm going to send you a pattern, Abby. I want you to try it out. Oh, de- I definitely will try it out. I will buy it. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, so yeah, what about like, what about the materials? The materials? Like, are you going to kit them up so that people? Oh yeah. You know, I think I'm going to, well, I'm going back to Squam this fall. I'm teaching there again. And I'm, I'm for the first time ever, I'm going to do their art fair, um, which I've never done before because I, you know, I, I never had anything to sell, you know, that I, that I could produce in volume or that really seemed right for that audience. You know, they're all, all people who are artists in their own right. And, um, I love the idea of having, you know, patterns and kits to share with them. So I'll probably put kits together for that fair. Um, and uh, I also was thinking of a flamingo kit. Right, and that would be a paper a paper kit. Yeah, paper mache. Um, no, I'm sorry, not paper mache, crepe paper. Right. Um, and as I've been, I'm sort of working on a bunch of these simultaneously. As I'm working on the flamingo kit, I'm starting to wonder if it makes more sense is just a, a pattern with a resource list because the um, Flamingo kit is getting kind of cumbersome and hands-on in terms of putting it together. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's a very different equation when you sell actual goods versus yeah. selling a digital good. It's yeah. really different. There's lots of shipping and materials required and labor to put it together. So those are two very different things. But I'm yeah. so excited. When I heard that you were going to branch out into selling patterns, I just thought, oh, Yes. <laughs> it's always, it seems like a really good idea all of a sudden. And, you know, other things too, like the, um, 
one of the first three patterns that I'm going to have out. I'm not sure what the third one is yet. I have a couple things in the works, but the other one will be a paper mache ship. Ultimately, I'd like to do a whole, you know, a sort of a bundle or an ebook on ships and boats um, in paper mache and a general sort of overview of some paper mache techniques that I like in armature building. But the the first boat to come out will be a a, um, a small ship. Interesting. And have you ever thought about writing a book? I mean, was there so was there a sort of thought in your head, like, do I self-publish these things or do I, do I write a book and, you know, work with a publisher? Was that ever something that, that occurred that's to a great, you? That's a great question. And I've gone a little bit way, ways down the book road with um, a, a couple packagers. And the conclusion that I have come to is that I can't afford to write a book. I'd love to. And, you know, if circumstances were different, you know, it would be great to, to put it together in a collection like that. But in terms of um, what I have to do to support myself, there's just, it, it's, it's just time-wise, it's just impossible. Yeah, because you're talking about basically a year's worth of labor yeah. for not a year's worth of salary. Yeah, yeah. Right. I think that selling the PDF, I mean, on a personal note, just from my own business perspective, I think selling the PDF patterns and self-publishing them is the best way to go, especially because you come with such a strong brand um, that you've built from yourself, you know, entirely yourself. And, um, and people will buy them from you because of that. And, you know, you can continue to make new ones while the old ones sell. You get, you know, 98% of the income from them. Right. And you're not compromising because when you do work with a publisher, there's a compromise there. They're going to design the pages. They're going to do some of the photography. They're going to limit, you know, the length of what's in there. They're going to edit your words. And even if you're, you know, working with a great company and a great publishing house and have a great editor in the end, it is not all your product. It is, right. it's a 50% collaboration with them and you are selling them also the intellectual property. So all of the patterns would then be theirs essentially. And you don't have them anymore. You can continue to produce them, uh, produce the birds themselves, but you can't sell the patterns after that yourself. Wow. So I think good move. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm really encouraged to hear that from you. I mean, I will say most of the information that I've gotten about creating and selling PDF patterns has come from your blog series and, you know, on making and selling PDF patterns. Um, In fact, I have a lot of questions I want to ask you. (laughs) We can talk later. How to do that. Um, Because your patterns look great. Um, And, you know, I just used uh, the PDF merge tool last night. Oh, yay. Yeah, <laughs> I awesome. used mine last night too. And I tried, I tried really hard to get my, my, my drawings to look as good as yours do, um, without using illustrator. And I couldn't, they were just a mess. Um, and, but I also did not know how to use illustrator. <laughs> so I went into like a sort of a deep cave of technology last weekend and I, I learned how to use the pen tool. Wow. And good for I, you. It was, I, I love that kind of, of obsessive, you know, journey into learning something. I, I, I've got to say the difference that it made is, you know, is spectacular. Really? It was, it's a really, it's a tricky program that I would love to really learn about. But um, I, my pattern, you know, the way my patterns were looking was kind of holding me up 
on, on releasing them. Um, and I feel a lot better about them now. And also I, something fascinating happened. You know, I've always had little, um, freezer paper patterns for my birds that I drew by hand. And, you know, I make a lot of birds and they usually come out just fine. And I was happy with them when I digitalized, um, the pattern, the shape tightened up. There's a consistency there that wasn't there before, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so now when you make them, if you use that sort of digital pattern, print it out, trace on some new freezer paper, maybe your birds will have a slightly different and more consistent look. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think that I, when I, I, you know, as I was testing my patterns myself, um, you know, I realized there's some, there's some vagueness and some adjustment that I put up with, and perhaps I shouldn't have. Perhaps I should have taken the time to really refine this and tighten it up because it's just it's i i can make them more quickly it's more consistent you know there aren't there like little gaps or whatever that were there before that i would adjust and fix later it makes me feel like i want to take all my hand-drawn patterns and you know put them through this process um because they just they just fall together yeah that's an unexpected positive that's so neat um so you've had a couple of um uh, collaborations. You mentioned one uh, with Fortuny, and I'd like to hear more about them. So, uh, periodically on your blog, you'll say, "You know, I just got these beautiful fabrics from Sri Textiles," or "You know, I'm making this for Fortuny with their fabrics." So, tell me about both of those. Sure, um, Fortuny. They're they are such nice guys. Um, I have been a fan of Fortuny fabrics since I was a kid. Um, you know, it's a really old textile house um in venice and i and mario fortuny you know giant historical designer um i think it's mario god did i say that wrong anyways um i had come across some fortuny fabric in a a textbook that i got at a flea market when i was a child and i was just thought it was beautiful and sort of um have been fascinated with them ever since and then a couple years ago i got an email from mickey riad who is the creative director now and um, he just said, uh, I want to call you up. <laughs> Can I have your phone number? And I gave him my number, and he called me up. And I sort of love that sort of email can turn into such a sea of back and forth, and it's kind of refreshing just to have somebody call you up. And he did, and he's like, I like your things. I wonder if I could send you some fabric, and you might you know, try working with it. And now we've been working together for years, um, and I think we're going to do some other things coming up, including maybe a... a class in how to make a boat from Fortuny at their studio. Um, but I love them. You know, I, Mickey's a friend now and they're such generous people and they're so creative. Um, it's been, it's been a wonderful thing for me. That's terrific. So have your pieces that you've made for them, what do they do with them once you've made them? Um, they sell them, they sell them. They have a showroom in Venice. They, uh, sell them out of the showroom in here in New York city um, they've, you know, I, one appeared in French L and then there's, you know, they get some calls and I take orders for them. Okay. Um, another one is going to be the end page for a, a decorating book. Yeah. And partly they just, I, they just like to have them around the showroom as sort of, yeah. you know, to display the, as another way of displaying the fabric, their showroom. If you're next time you're in New York city, go visit them. It's so, they're generous and lovely to visit and the showroom is so beautiful. I will. That's it's awesome. in the D&D building, which you would love anyways. Okay, super. I'm putting it on my list. I love New York. I was just there. I'm going to definitely go back. Um, okay, and what about Sri Textiles? Sri. 
Stephen, you know, it's kind of a funny story. Um, before I was doing any of this, I uh, came across an article about Stephen and Sri in Country Living magazine. He has a studio in Greenpoint, and, you know, he works with Japanese textiles, a lot of boro. And I'd never seen boro before, you know, those layered um, patchwork kind of, they look like abstract paintings. And there, were, there was a picture of Stephen in this article, and there were a picture of these amazing patch textiles that I thought were so inspiring. The compositions were so beautiful, and I'd never seen anything like it. And I liked it so much, I cut the article out, and I put it on my refrigerator. And it stayed there for years. And then, you know, fast forward a little bit, I started making the birds, I started my blog, and um, I would occasionally mention Stephen's website um, as I was referring to different textiles that I liked. Um, and anyways, coincidentally, one of my friends saw my mention of, of the Sri Studio, and he followed it, and he decided that he wanted to, to buy one of the pieces. So he said he was he had made an appointment with Stephen, and he was going out there. And I said, I, I'd love to go with you. I'd you know, love to meet this person. And um, so I went with him, and I met Stephen. And we were instant friends, and um, we have been ever since. And th there's this magical occurrence that happens every once in a while where, you know, unannounced and unexpected, the postman brings me a giant box from Stephen. And, you know, he travels to Japan three three times a year, I think, now. And, you know, buys his beautiful pieces that he sells. And the things that aren't perfect or cast-offs or things that he feels like I would find interesting or, you know, uh, funny little collections of, you know, 19th century threads because nobody threw anything away. You know, things are too precious to waste. Um, and, you know, I find them incredibly inspiring and incredibly precious. And it's also... It brings in this element of happenstance, like these, you know, I don't choose these things, he chooses them. So he becomes the collaborator. Um, I, you know, I get ideas that I think I would not have otherwise gotten. Um, and the fabrics are, are hypnotizingly beautiful. Yeah, they really are. And, you know, it's interesting. It's like if you put out into the world on, you know, to your, on your blog with your friends, you know, I'm really drawn to this particular Thing. And you kind of mention it because really you are. Right. You never know, you know, life leads in particular ways and people yeah. are connected to people you didn't know they were connected to. And over time, there you go, a box arrives, you know, and it can, that kind of thing is just so wonderful. It is. It is. And, you know, the other treasures, Stephen is just an amazing, amazing person. Yeah. So then you also connect. And I love how you said that he's he becomes the collaborator because he chooses the materials. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you're going to be teaching at Squam again. And what is this class about? Um, it's called Wild Beauty, and it is about creating botanical experiments. Um, it's largely about being inspired by sort of the natural world around us. So the Squam, you know, Squam is the perfect setting for this. I mean, Holderness um, is beautiful. The camp is beautiful. Also, I don't know if you know, it's it's a Victorian camp. I mean, yeah. it's everything I love. Right. <laughs> it just, the cabins are beautiful. Um, the lake is beautiful. Um, so uh, the class is going to be about experimenting with shapes and stitches to create realistic representations of some botanical things and also to take elements and deconstruct and make some, uh, you know, abstract 
experiments. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the, I'm bringing some basic shapes with me to teach because, you know, it's sort of, it's a good jumping off point to have a sort of basic shape to start with and expound from. And one that I'm really excited about um, is my mushroom shape, which it took me more than two years to figure out exactly what I wanted in a mushroom shape. And it was really hard to get there. Um, I wanted it to be a little spongy, a little irregular, and I very much wanted the, um, is it concave? You know, the, that, that's uh, what I was just going to yeah. say. The best thing <laughs> the about your shape. mushroom is that and the I, underside mm-hmm. goes in. I tried. Oh my goodness. Failed. Blows and, my mind. And failed and tried and failed. So that's sort of like, that's what I want to kick off the class with at Squam is like, because it's also the, it's a super top secret way of making it, but it's kind of like, it makes you look at a material and say, well, if you can do that, there's, you could do all these other shapes are possible too. And Um, that is the kind of thing that I just love the most. I think that that's so exciting. It's so fun. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I would love to, after this class, um, is over, maybe sort of compile those patterns into an ebook about botanicals. Yeah. See, and so many, um, ideas come once you begin to self-publish and get the instructions. Oh yeah. Right. All these other things you're like, Oh, well I could put these together and make an ebook. And it's exciting to see all the ideas being able to, to get out, you know? It's, it's amazing. You know, and I, like I said, you, so much of my pattern information has come from sort of watching what you do and you're watching your catalog grow. Um, and thinking, wow, you know, one thing really does lead to another. And after, you know, once the decision got solid in my mind, like that I was going to do this because I was back and forth. And also I had run the idea by a, a couple of people who said, don't do that. Um, you know, and I thought, oh, that's a, you know, a strong reaction. <laughs> what do I do? But once I had made up my mind that, you know, despite whatever fear or anxiety I had about it, that I feel like it's what I want to do, it's the right thing to do, I had this cascade yeah. of ideas that, you know, and, you know, I can't wait to share the boat, you know, have the ship pattern. It's such a, it's, it's a, the technique of making the ships will lead you to make a million other things that aren't ships with this really simple, easy technique. Um, and, you know, that, then I thought, well, with that technique, maybe, you know, I could also make these animal masks. So I'm working on now these animal masks that I never would have thought of doing if I hadn't sort of thought through the process of how I was going to share the boat making process. Yeah. And now it's like, it, it really does. It opens the floodgates of creativity because you're That's not it. trapped into feeling like I can only yeah. make these four things because these are the things that are successful yeah. and this is where the demand is. Yep. Yeah, yep. totally. So, um, so that sounds terrific. And when is Squam? When is the, when is the, uh, it know? is in the beginning of September. Okay. All right. And I wonder if there's still space left in your class. I'm betting. Um, uh, you know, I try to, I need to have a pretty small class size just because of the, the nature of the projects. And also I discovered when I taught in 2012 that, you know, uh, I can't, I can't deal with a, a lot of people at the same time that I'm just, I just at a certain point I get overwhelmed, um, and, and feel unable to give everybody the attention they, they deserve. Um, I, I, I think that there might be a couple spaces in at least one of the days. I'm not sure I can check on that for you. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm sure it'll fill up right away. I, it sounds so terrific and I'd love to go to Squam at some point when I don't have little kids at home because oh, that's, you have those little kids. Why do you know? 
<laughs> well, my time will come. Don't worry. I'm, yeah, I'm patient. You would, you, would, you would love Squam, and I think Squam would love you. <laughs> It'll it is, it's as much fun as a person can have. Over uh, the weekend. And it doesn't matter if it rains. It doesn't matter if it, you know, there's a million bugs or not a million bugs. It, it doesn't matter. It's just so much fun. That sounds great. Um, so, so I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, on my podcast is we usually have some recommendations and I didn't want to go without recommendations today. So I have, I have yep. asked you to pull together a short list of things you're loving right now. And you kindly did that. And I want to talk about those. So the first thing that you wanted to recommend to people is a sport hoop, and yep. this looks pretty fun. So tell us about that. Oh boy, the hoop! Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the. Oh, also before I forget, I I have one recommendation that I want to add. Okay, if that's okay with you, something else just came across my radar of that course. I wanted to tell you about. Anyways, the hoop. Oh my goodness! Um, a couple disclaimers about the hoop. Uh, I am in no way affiliated with Sport Hoop. I, you know, I don't get any money from Sport Hoop. This is an unpaid endorsement. <laughs> and second of all, you know, I can't be responsible for any injuries or breakage that occurs. <laughs> the Sport Hoop. Um, the Sport Hoop is a giant weighted hula hoop. Mine is uh, in rainbow colors, and uh, it costs about thirty bucks. And um, I came across it. I was having dinner with a friend and she was talking about her back problems, which I also have back problems. And she said that her therapist had recommended a sport hoop to her um, to strengthen her uh, lower back and trunk muscles. You know, if you have strong trunk muscles, it can help support your, your back. Anyways, so she said that uh, he recommended this sport hoop and that he cautioned her to only do it for 20 seconds at a time initially. And I think that's the caution they have on their website. Anyways... Um, she was saying that it had been awesome and it had been really helpful and that not only was it helping her back, that it's an amazing workout that you do with something that costs 30 bucks or less and you can do it in your apartment or your, your house. Um, and I thought that sounded great. And I also arrogantly thought, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm not doing this for 20 seconds. I'm doing it for like half an hour. <laughs> so I ordered it um, and... I put it together and it's a giant rainbow color. It's huge and it has these sort of ripples in it. It's a much bigger circumference than a normal hula hoop. And I think mine weighs three pounds. They come in different weights. Anyways, I fired it up and I immediately like took out a lamp. Because <laughs> it didn't allow for, you know, the hugeness of the circumference and how heavy it is. Um, 20 seconds, I couldn't do it at all. I couldn't get the thing going. Um, finally, I was able to sort of... I look like an idiot doing this, by the way, too. But I was able to get the hula hoop going, and um, you know, it's 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 heavy, it's awkward. Once after a while, after some practice, you get it going, and you can do it. But twenty seconds was a lot. Um, there's some pain initially, which sounds really bad. It's like being punched in the midsection by like fifty angry children. <laughs> yes. That's really what it feels like. And you think, oh, my God, I have to stop this and never do it again. But that does, it goes away. Um, and eventually, you know, I think the, the longest I've been able to do it is about 20 minutes. And that's when I was, you know, that's, that's been my peak. Um, but I put music on. I get a little dancey with it. Um, it's a very intense workout. And it works out your entire body. You will feel every single muscle in your body while you're doing this. Wow. And it's basically just hula hooping with this big weighted hoop. But that, that's the thing. The big weighted hoop part makes it a, a, something that, that you've never experienced before. Wow. 
uh, my, I will say if you you're going to be alarmed by the the initial sensation, but if you can get through that, a couple days later, um, you, it, it, it gets better. That sounds terrific. Um, don't do it for more than twenty seconds first because there, you, you will be sore. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Um, I would never have come across something like this. Well, there you go. I'm yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I'm ready to take out the lamps in my house now. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, so let's go to the one that you wanted that you just uh, remembered about that you wanted to add to your list. Okay. It's a, it's a book. It's a book I haven't read yet. Um, so, it, and I came across it and I thought, oh, I can't really recommend a book that I haven't read yet, but I've gotten it and I'm going to read it. Um, and I like books about, you know, creative process and sort of the act of, of being creative and the muscle of being creative. Like, I think you probably know that I'm a huge fan of Twyla Tharp's book. Um, and this is a, a, a book that I came, across, I came across recently by David Lynch, you know, Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, that director. Um, and the name of the book is Catching the Big Fish, Meditation, Consciousness, and Creativity. Um, and there's, I'll read you a quote from it that is what sold me on it, made me buy the book. A quote from David Lynch, ideas are like fish. If you want to catch little fish, you can stay in the shallow water. But if you want to catch big fish, you've got to go deeper. Down deep, the fish are more powerful and more pure. They're huge and abstract, and they're beautiful. That's lovely. I know. It is. It's beautiful. And um, that, you know, that made me feel like I have to read this book. I sort of feel like, you know, I'm super interested in getting to ideas that are maybe not at the surface, that are harder to access. Um, and I think that this, this book sounds like it's a really good tool for that. I mean, it's such a great feeling when you feel like you've, you've gotten to something that you weren't expecting or something that, you know, that sort of that state of flow or something that you had to work hard to get near. Yes, um, totally. There is a different feeling in those kinds of ideas. Yeah, they're, they're the best ones. And I often have trouble even acknowledging that the idea even exists now. You know, it's almost as though it's become a part of me and I don't even see it. Like, it's just... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a strange thing where I feel like sometimes I'm like, oh, I have no ideas. And then I look back, I'm like, yeah, I have lots of ideas and all these things have happened, but I don't even sort of own them. They just are, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a weird, I don't know. Yeah. It's a funny sensation. I mean, I think that, um, and it, you know, it, it, it speaks also to the question of inspiration. And I think that you have to work hard sometimes to get near these things. But I think that somehow through the, through, you know, your DNA or your experiences or whatever, they're in there, you know, there's this stuff in there and it would just, it seems to me tragic to not go looking, you know, really hard for the really interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, um, and it makes me think back to when you were talking about kind of starting the blog and, um, shifting from doing client work to doing your own work to sort of wanting to access those ideas, those personal mm-hmm. ideas for the, for the, and really spend time on them, you know? So, um, all right. So we have two, um, two materials or tools that were your other two picks. One of them is a kind of paint made by Lasco. Um, this is yet, the, the, a pattern is emerging, emerging here of me not knowing how to pronounce things. I, it's, it's either Lasco or Lasqua. I have no idea. Oh, I don't know either. (laughs) I don't know. Let's see. (laughs) It's one of those things I've never actually had to say it out loud before. Um, Yeah, it's a kind of paint, and it's my favorite kind of paint. 
um, it's, it's a little pricey, but you know, nice paint is all pricey and it, it, it's very dense and, and, you know, very pigmented. So it goes a long way, but the, the difference that I find in it, um, is it, when dry, it has a very matte finish, almost like dried oil paint, as opposed to almost any other kind of acrylic paint. And it's an acrylic paint. I don't, you know, I don't use any oil paints. I just don't want to be around the smell. Um, it, but it looks like oil paint. It kind of acts like oil paint. And I, you know, I've never come across an acrylic paint that, you know, has such a perfectly matte surface when dry. That's and cool. the colors so are really rich. It's kind of like how gouache is to watercolor, would you say? It, like it kind of. But I find, you know, I have a hard time working with gouache. Um, so it's sort of all the usability and flowability um, of, of acrylics. acrylics with this matteness. And maybe the gouache has almost a powdery flatness to it. And this I would, I would call more of just like matte, not uh-huh. really powdery, but beautifully flat. Wow, that's neat. Yeah, that is neat. Um, that's a cool effect. And what what do you paint with it? Um, anything, really. You know, I've been trying to do more. It's sort of a, a came back in the other direction. Last year, I decided that I wanted to do more two dimensional work again, just because it's something that I enjoy. Um, it's very portable, um, but it seems to be something I need to sort of discipline myself to do. In fact, I did a blog series last year. Um, called This Is Where I'm am, am From, where I committed to doing a two-dimensional work. It didn't matter, you know, painting, paper, whatever, um, and post that on my blog every week, which I did for a year. Uh-huh. And did were some of them painted with this kind of paint? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's sort of, I buy as much La Squaw, whatever, you know, of as much of that. <laughs> As I can afford to, I, you know, for, for practicality, I, you know, mix in some other acrylics, but, um, in a perfect world. Yeah. It's definitely my favorite. Cool. And you also wanted to talk about glass headed applique pins and I use these too and they're awesome. And I brought them with me. Where was I? I brought them. Oh, I brought them to a photo shoot for one of my books and the, um, the editor there was like, what are these? Why are they so small? And I was like, oh, you've never seen these before. She's like, oh, are they Japanese or something? Why are they so tiny? I'm like, oh, these are the best pins if you're going to be making something really tiny. So I was excited that you use them too. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel better because I almost didn't recommend them because I was like, this is one of those things that you didn't know about that everybody else in the world already knows about. Um, so at least one other person didn't know. Yeah. I was shocked. She didn't (laughs) know about them. (laughs) I had no idea. You know, there's in, in the world of sewing, I'm so sort of like by the seat of my pants. There's a lot I don't know about. There was a period where I think I thought I invented darts. I mean, (laughs) very much in a bubble. Um, Anyways, these pins were a present. They were a part of a little care package that one of my 2012 Squam students sent me. And they're amazing. And honest to God, I wouldn't know about them, but that she sent them to me. First of all, they're adorable. They're little. Um, and they're so pretty. I like to sprinkle them around photos. But if you're making small work and, you know, pinning it and sewing it, these just make such a difference. It's just they're so easy to maneuver around, perfect for tiny curves. I also love to use them to place eyes on, you know, to plot out where I'm going to place an eye. Um, they're great. Yeah, they are really good. You can great. iron over them because they're glass headed. 
Yes, right. Exactly. I love glass-headed pins. And I also find, weirdly, that glass-headed pins tend to stay sharper longer. I'm not sure why that is. Hmm. I think maybe it's in my mind, but I guess I feel like if they put more, you know, a, a nicer material on the head, then somehow the point is also better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I believe it could be true. But you know what else is funny? is like sort of the things that happen when you sew in volume. Like you start to know things about pins or, and you, and you ran out of thread. Like I, it's so funny that I, I think I had one spool of thread that lasted me like 10 years until I started to sew a lot. Now I, you know, I buy a huge amount of thread. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. I need, I, I've been recent looking recently into buying sort of bulk thread because I know I need a lot of thread and it's so frustrating when you run out of thread. Oh my Um, God. It is right. You know, I, I have this incredibly happy circumstance of a sewing notion store opened almost across the street from me. Um, I don't know how much longer it's going to be there, but it's, you know, it's made my life so easy. I can run across the street. (laughs) I imagine. And, um, do you use your machine a lot or do you use, do you do a lot of hand sewing or is it kind of a combo? I know you, I, I remember seeing you, you know, posting about sewing in the park and finishing birds in the park, but are the is there a, a machine part of that first that takes place? Yeah. Whatever, whatever is possible to be sewn on the machine or whatever is served by being sewn on the machine, mm-hmm. I sew on the machine. Yeah. Um, most of what I do is so small, it has to be sewn by hand. Um, so, so there is a combo there. Okay. Um, you know, simpler seams, straighter seams. The curves on the birds are so tiny um, that they can't be sewn in the machine. They have to be sewn by hand. I still sew mostly on my mom's old white sewing machine. Uh, lately I've gotten curious about, you know, modern possibilities. Um, and maybe some more of what I sew could be sewn on a more modern machine, but you know, I love the old white. Um, it's interesting also to note that a few years ago I licensed my bird pattern, um, to then they were made in China and the what company, China, what company did you work with? I don't think I'm allowed to say, Okay, but, but, um, but they, you know, they came out, they were, they were, in fact, I guess whether I'm allowed to, I don't guess I don't want to say, cause they were, they were just disastrous. It was one of those things that I, I didn't really have a lot of control over. Um, and I didn't really feel like I had much of a choice, but to do it just because of the way it was presented to me. But anyways, I ended up you know, having birds made in China. Um, and the Chinese response to the pattern was, this can't be sewn on a machine. Interesting. So the, even the Chinese couldn't do it. So right. I felt bad about not being able to do it. Right. Gosh, that is, that is really fascinating because, um, you know, we have, I, we sometimes get like little prizes, you know, like at a carnival or something like that. And there'll be a little tiny stuffed animal, like a little yep. keychain size yeah, stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. And they're, it's really small. I mean, it, it fits in the palm of your hand, but it's, you know, it's a little pony or something like that that my kids will get. And it's made in China. You know, it's got the tag made in China and it's, you know, sewn in a factory and it's so small. I mean, I look at it and I'm like, for me to make this, this would be hard to do on the machine, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think they could have figured out how to make the birds had they, I know exactly the animals that you're talking about. I have one of those. Um, and it's made out of a stretchy fabric. And I think it's a it's a different pattern making process, and um, you know it, it's a it's a different sewing process. But I think that they could have redesigned and made them stretch. I'm not saying I would want them to, but I think that would have been a smarter mm-hmm. way to approach it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that that um, experience wasn't a positive one, but um, oh, the birds were so scary. Mm. They, you can look on eBay; they're there. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I'm scared to look. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of loops back to the idea of relinquishing control too. Um, and the collaboration and sometimes that collaboration isn't as, um, positive as you would want to, you want it to be. So interesting. Um, well, this has been such a great conversation and I'm, I just feel so blessed that you wanted to speak with me and agreed to come on the show and, um, and just share kind of your journey and, uh, your design process. I just love hearing about it and, and hearing about your sport hoop was also a highlight. <laughs> and I think that's really the most important thing that we talked about. I do too. Hoop. I would agree with you. <laughs> um, so you can find Ann Wood online at annwoodhandmade.com. See her work and uh, read Ann's blog and get on her mailing list. And you have a new mailing list now for the patterns. Is that right? Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's a, it is a group section. Yeah, I use MailChimp. Um, I made it a, a group of my blog list. So, you know, you have, when you go to the sign up, you have a choice of what you want to get updates about. I have a separate list that's just for my shop and for artwork that I make. So this list is if you want to get blog updates by email or you, but you don't have to get blog updates by email, or you can just sign up for updates about pattern releases and workshops. That's super. And, um, I often would wonder like, how do people know about Anne's birds so fast? As soon as they come online and are for sale, they're all gone. And then I was like, all right, the mailing list. (laughs) Then I signed up for the mailing list. I'm like, that is how you know before everybody else. That's it's the, I think it's the single most important thing you can do when you're starting something is start a mailing list. It's, you know, it's something you own comes with you wherever you go. Nobody can shut it down or take it away from you. Um, and it's people volunteering to hear about what all you're up to. Absolutely. So. And whenever I get your email, I'm always like, Ooh, cool. What's, you know, what's going on with Anne? So, um, yeah, that's exactly right. When you email people, you're not being a pain. And if they don't want to be part of it, they can unsubscribe, which is fine. Nobody takes it personally, but you know, they want to hear from you. So send them things. Definitely. Yeah, I always feel like I'm being a pain though. I swear to God, I'm insecure every single time I send you. There's a cringe factor to like, Oh my God. Um, yeah, I'm very self-conscious well, about it. Well, just imagine it, me on the end, on the other end, I'm being like, "I'm gonna do that from now Woo-hoo! on." <laughs> <laughs> I'm always happy when it shows up in my inbox. I'm so glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've been listening to the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg, and I invite you to visit my blog, WhileSheNaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.